Exodus chapter 8. As we started Exodus chapter 7, we started to get into the plagues of Egypt. When we think about the story of the Exodus, that's usually right at the core of what we're thinking through, those various plagues, and we get to Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. So we're in one of those moments. And remember, as we started talking about it last time, we're seeing this through the lens of the confrontation of the gods. We have Moses and we have Pharaoh, these two characters that talk back and forth. So on one level, we're watching these two individuals go back and forth. But what's really happening is that the God of Moses is at work against the gods of Egypt and revealing himself to be the one true almighty God above all things. And that story has started in chapter 7. It continues with more of the plagues here in chapter 8. So as these plagues continue to unfold, one of the things that happens in our chapter this morning is that the Pharaoh's magicians reach their limit, their ability to mimic the power of God. And they've done that so far, but during these plagues, their ability to mimic the power of God actually ceases. We continue to read the language of Pharaoh's heart growing harder, or as the language goes, and we've talked about this a couple of times, he's growing stronger and stronger in his will, inclined against God. And then along the way, Pharaoh is even willing to fake negotiations with Moses and Aaron. I'll go ahead and let your people go if you do this. Well, maybe you can go for a little while. Maybe you can sacrifice here. He's faking negotiations with Moses and with Aaron. And we continue to see, and this is one of the subplots that we watch throughout the book of Exodus as we see what happens with Pharaoh and his reaction to God and God's will. We're learning what tyrants do and how tyrants behave. We're watching this unfold in Pharaoh's heart. Their flexibility, the flexibility with the tyrant, with other people and their ideas is just a lie. It's a farce. It's a tool. And tyrants, as we will discover do not care how much suffering their people go through so that they can get their way. In many ways, that's Pharaoh's story through the, um, the plagues of Egypt. Now, more Egyptian deities are going to come under the judgment of God, and we'll pay attention to a few of those this morning. And both Israel and Egypt are learning about the one true God. And it's a new revelation. It's something new that the people of Israel need to learn about the kind of God that they worship. And God has even said so far that I'm going to do these things so that the Egyptians will also know that I am the Lord, Yahweh. I am the I am that I am. So God's revealing himself to be completely different from everything else the Egyptians have been worshiping. So it's a new lesson in many ways to these people throughout the book of Exodus. In our passage this morning, we're going to watch some more plagues unfold, but we're going to pay attention to a couple of things specifically. First of all, the worship of God or the worship of nature? The worship of God or the worship of nature? All of the Egyptian deities are attached directly to bits and pieces of nature. If you and I were to sort of step back into their world and into their religion and the way their daily life and their sacrifices and their prayers would go, I don't know if you and I would see a difference 
between the worship of their gods and the worship of nature, bits and pieces of nature or of nature altogether. And so it is with the Egyptians and with the Canaanites and the way that pagan gods work throughout history. There is this intimate connection between the worship of those gods and the worship of nature. Now, we cannot imagine that you and I are beyond that. We're going to talk about this in more detail a little bit later on, but you and I in our modern, advanced age, we are not beyond that. We continue to worship the creature rather than the creator. And there are consequences to that. It's not a zero-sum game. There are consequences to false worship. So that's the other thing we're going to talk about, the consequences of worshiping false gods. False gods come with false promises. They come with false power. They come with false morality. And false gods come with an increasingly loose grip on reality. Now hold on to that thought because I think if, if that makes sense to us this morning, we are going to understand what's going on in the world around us in a better way. The worship of a false god actually loosens our grip on reality itself. It turns some people to the point of denying reality altogether. There are consequences to worshiping false gods, and we watch that unfold throughout the plagues to absolutely devastating effects. So Exodus chapter 8 Beginning in verse 1, let's read the first section of this as we jump into what is the second plague, the plague of frogs. And I apologize, our frog guy didn't come through this week. We tried. We just could not get enough frogs in here to help us get a feel for what this was going to be like. Our gnat guy came through, though, so just hang on. <laughs> Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls and your microwaves and your cars. The frogs shall come up on you and your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs, more frogs, come up on the land of Egypt." Thus says the Lord, <clears throat> let my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness. There are two or three phrases that repeat themselves in pretty much every one of the plagues in one form or another. God's call to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. Every step of the way, Pharaoh is given that option and Pharaoh has different reactions to that option. 
And then the other phrase that shows up over and over again, and in fact, the more this passage has rolled through my heart and mind this week, this is the phrase that just keeps coming back to me, that they may know that I am the Lord. This is going to happen so that they will know that I am by myself the Lord. I am the only I am. And then this language of Pharaoh's heart constantly growing harder against God. It's either the language of his heart grew harder or Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And then later on, we see more of that language that God hardened his heart against him. But these things roll throughout all of these. So God warns Pharaoh again, let my people go so that they may serve me. And the promise now is the second plague, the promise of the plague of frogs. And we have the Nile again. The first plague was the Nile turning into blood. The Nile is the life force of the land of Egypt to their culture, to their economy, to their agriculture, to their livestock, to everything about them. If it weren't for the Nile, Egypt would not be what it was. So God showing his power over over that river and over the deities that are personified by that river are incredibly important to how the story unfolds. So God is again showing his power over what the Nile does, the role of the Nile in the grand scheme of things under God himself. They cannot afford to have this river turn against them, and yet God keeps causing it to turn against them. So Aaron stretches out his staff over the river, and these frogs begin to come out of the water in absolutely untold numbers. So there is actually a goddess in the Egyptian pantheon that is represented by the frog. And this goddess's name is Hecht. You'll see it as either H-E-K-T or H-E-Q-E-T. And there's a, a wonderful little image of the goddess Hecht there on the right with the head of the frog. Many of the Egyptian deities are actually represented in this way, a human body and then an animal head. And if you've seen a lot of these, this will be kind of familiar. May, you may not have seen this one, but you may have seen the, the Egyptian god with the head of the alligator or the head of the falcon. This is how connected their worship is to creation, to world, to animals, to the Nile, to the earth, to the sky, to the sun, and on and on it goes. The goddess Hecht for the Egyptians represents resurrection, represents fertility. This goddess is prayed to at the birth of a child because it's believed that she acts like a midwife in birth and she's the one who breathes life into children. And so as the plague begins and as these frogs start coming out in untold numbers here in the land of Egypt, God is just showing the Hebrew people and the people of Egypt that the God of these Hebrew slaves can control whatever their God does, whatever they think their God does. He can control the image of their God, the one that they, you know, there are even little uh, uh, carvings of frogs that Egyptians would have inside of their homes to worship this particular goddess. God can control this from beginning to end. I'm gonna create so many of them that it's gonna be absolutely awful for you. I'm gonna control the end of the plague as well and they're going to die and they're going to stink up the land. So God is just continuing to show who he is above 
the worship of the Egyptians. And then the little section that we read ends with this great little phrase, but Pharaoh's magicians made more frogs. And again, again with the frogs, guys. They made more snakes. Uh, they made more blood in water. Like, that was helpful. And now they make more frogs. Recognize again that the power of Satan is not the power to create and build. It is the power to mimic and destroy. So the frogs are causing havoc in the land of Egypt. So what power does Satan have? We're going to wreak more havoc in the land of Egypt. Remember, we talked about that at good length last week, about the power of God versus the power of our enemy. So we see that unfold here in the second plague, the plague of the frogs. Well, the story continues here in verse 8. So the land is just filled with these things. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, and Pharaoh told Moses, tomorrow. And Moses said, be it as you say so, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from the Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the words of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. The only living frogs that were left were in the Nile. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. It's so bad that the language is plead with the Lord to take away these frogs. So the frogs are absolutely everywhere. It is uncontrollable. It could not be controlled or contained by Pharaoh, his magicians, or the rest of the culture. So Pharaoh begins a negotiation. You get your Lord to remove the frogs, and I'll go ahead and let you sacrifice to your God. And the conversation is great. Moses says, all right, name the day. So it's another way for Moses to reveal to Pharaoh, God's in control of this thing from beginning to end. Moses says, well, could you at least do it by tomorrow? Sure, we can get this done by tomorrow. The only live frogs will be left in the river. And so it says, the, the text says that Moses cried out to the Lord and the plague ends, but all these frogs die and they gather them up in heaps and it just absolutely stinks. I just, I love that image. For some reason, that image just sticks in my nose, so to speak. This is, this is what sin does. Its remnant stinks in our nostrils and in our lives. But again, the language is interesting because 
Pharaoh says, plead with the Lord to get rid of these things. And Moses then, when the text talks about what Moses says, he says he cries out to the Lord. It's very similar language. And some scholars believe that it's a version of Moses pleading with God. It's almost as if Moses himself is a little overwhelmed at what God is able to do. Now, he's talked to God at the burning bush, but now that the plagues are stepping up and they, they increase in severity, and in a couple of the later plagues, it just, I mean, these steps of increase get, get huge. It gets worse and worse and worse. It's almost as if Moses, when he comes in contact with this plague, goes, this is, this is going to get ugly. So he cries out to God on behalf of Pharaoh, on behalf of the people of Egypt, And the plague ceases, but the frogs are left dead. And again, Moses says, and here's that phrase in verse 10. This is all going to happen so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. God actually said in chapter 7, this is one of the reasons for the plagues. They're going to know, and you, Moses, and the people of Israel, By the act of my power in the face of great evil, you will know that I alone am the Lord. And it's just another great irony that the creature the Egyptians idolize has become a pollutant to the land by the hand of God. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardens his heart against God and he refuses to let them go. At the very least, we need to hear this this morning. This is exactly what sin does in the heart of every human being. We think when the dust is settled, we've rebelled against God, we've sinned against God, we've disobeyed him and his commands, and somehow we think we've gotten away with it. It wasn't as bad as it could have possibly been, and so then what happens inside of our heart is, Okay, that wasn't so bad. I'm going to harden my heart. My heart gets hardened against God even more. Then we roll ourselves right back into the same kinds of patterns. This is the nature of sin inside of the human heart, and so it is with Pharaoh. But because of who he is and the scale of this story, it has these massive consequences as he continues to bend himself against God. We've got another plague, the third plague, the gnats. Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all of the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand and the staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. There's a lot of sand in Egypt. Just, you know, just so we're clear, this is, this is a problem. The magicians tried their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. The power of God over the gods and the power of Egypt continues to grow and increase to the point that they can't even mimic it anymore. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened 
And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. In the third plague, remember we talked about the cycle a little bit last time. It's three cycles of three. Moses meets Pharaoh uh, by the water in the first. Moses meets Pharaoh most likely in his court in the second. And then third in each cycle of three happens without warning. So God tells Moses and Aaron, this is what you're going to do. Strike the earth, and the dust of the earth itself is going to become this plague. It's going to become these gnats. Most likely, the Egyptian god that has been struck in this part um, of the plagues is an Egyptian god by the name of Geb, G-E-B. And he is considered to be the god of the earth. And so what's happening here is that he is struck by the hand of God through Aaron's staff, and Geb is not in control of himself. God is in control of the very dust of the ground itself, of the very earth. And Geb is a significant figure in Egyptian mythology. He's actually crucial to the creation myth. He's crucial to the balance between earth and sky. So later on, some of these plagues are actually going to rain down from the sky. The sky itself will turn against the Egyptians. So God just constantly, over and over and over, even if you and I can only grasp a piece of it, even if you and I aren't always able to name the God or goddess that God is dealing with, the Egyptians know, and the Israelites know, and Pharaoh knows, and Moses knows, that God is every step of the way showing himself to be greater than everything else the Egyptians worship. And at this point, the Egyptian magicians try to copy, and they can't. So they tell Pharaoh, we can't do this. This is the finger of God. So Pharaoh's heard that now from his own magicians, the people he has used to dismiss the power of God. See, I've got just as much power and my behest. They say, well, we can't do this anymore. So the plagues just continue to increase in severity. It's becoming clear that the Lord himself is in control over all creation. So the Egyptian belief that creation and their gods being interconnected is being completely overwhelmed by the God who created all things. I think this is important for us to hear and understand that the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Bible, the God that you and I know and worship is different from every other God worshiped by every other nation. He is just different than every other God. And he's revealing himself as such to his people throughout this book by works of his power on their behalf. So I want to make sure we're clear on a couple of things as followers of Jesus Christ, as believers in this God, because some of the things that are happening inside of our culture are blurring these lines. So you and I need to be clear about a couple of things. I like this thought. God is the creator and is not identical to any part of creation or even to all of creation. So God is not identical to some part of creation. So many of these ancient uh, pagan religions and their pantheon of gods, there's usually one or two that are kind of right at the, 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 the pinnacle there. Maybe the sun god or the moon goddess or however it works out inside of their religion that they have one great god above all of the other gods. 
This God is starting to say and reveal to us, I'm not like that. It's not that the other gods that people worship are also gods, but I'm just a little bit better than they are. He's saying I'm above all of this. I alone am the only God who exists. He's not identical to all of creation. So polytheism is false and pantheism is false. The belief that creation is God, the belief that all of creation is interconnected with God and all of us on some level are one or connected to each other in the divine. And you know, you've heard lines like this to try to make you feel special. You are made of star stuff. It's supposed to make us feel good. You know, that we're made of hydrogen and oxygen and all that good stuff, right? This belief that creation is identical to God creates the worship of creation. And this is one of the problems that we have in our culture right now is the worship of creation, not the care of creation, the worship of creation over humanity. So a critical part of our knowledge of God and our worship of God is knowing him as almighty creator of all things, who was from before the beginning and will be after the end of creation as we know it. And in fact, Scripture tells us he's going to make a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. You can't do that if God is the same as creation. He has to be above it and beyond it, the creator of absolutely all things. So it is that Scripture itself begins with exactly this thought, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God just emerged and creation was there. That's the pagan story of the creation myth. Genesis 1.1, though, says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He was almighty in his power and perfect in his being before any of this ever existed. And in his will and power and by the voice of his very word, all of this spins into existence. This is the God who is showing himself through Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh and to us and to the Hebrews. He alone is God. So friends, recognize this. Human beings are... Human beings are worshipers. We will worship one thing or another. The theologian Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. We're constantly producing idols, false gods for us to worship and put all our hope and trust in. So here's what I think is the truth of worship. Either we worship God or we worship created things. There is no other third way, I believe. We don't worship nothing. We're going to worship either the God who created all things, or something that God created. So in fact, Paul tells us in the book of Romans that there are consequences to this. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read a couple of these verses, verses 24 and 25. Paul says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
Now, this sits in the context of some really powerful stuff that Paul says here in Romans chapter 1. But notice, even just inside of these couple of verses, when we cease to worship the one true God, one of the first things that goes wrong with us is our relationship to our own bodies. That's important for us to hear. What we think about the human physical body, what we think about what a human being is, should I say, what we think a woman is, what we think a man is, it starts to go wrong when we worship creatures instead of the creator of all things. And that's one of the lessons that Paul tells us in that particular passage of Scripture. So it's not just these crazy ancient Egyptians who really, I mean, sure, they built the pyramids, but they really weren't much smarter than that. I mean, they're worshiping gods with frog heads for Pete's sake. We can't just say it belongs in ancient civilization. We do the same thing. We just give these gods different names. We haven't escaped the trap. We worship technology. Transhumanism is one of these words that comes to the surface more and more and more. And friends, there are people out there with influence and power and money, whatever that means, but there are people out there who believe that the way for humans to fix everything about themselves to achieve salvation and immortality is to download your biology into the cloud. Not the cloud that God lives in, but the cloud that's run by Microsoft and Google. You upload yourself there, you find eternity. This is, this is a religion. This is a false god. We worship various techniques and political ideologies. If only we would do certain things with our technique and our ideas and our philosophies, we're going to fix absolutely everything. Increasingly, we worship our own feelings and emotions. We worship our own potential and progress. And yes, we worship the environment. We do. There's a lot in this culture that has exchanged God for creation and in the process has placed creation above humanity. As gigantic and glorious as creation is, creation does not bear the image of God. You, shockingly enough, bear the image of God. So creation worship flips the script wants fewer humans, and worships creation. <clears throat> it's called Gaia worship. She is actually a false god. She is actually a demon. I'm just putting that out there. You guys can go ahead and react. You guys can go ahead and react to that. Don't throw anything, but go ahead and react. So friends, worshiping God as creator corrects our relationship with both God and creation. Worshiping God as creator fixes, makes right our relationship with both God and creation. The biblical model of creation is stewardship. It's not worship. It's stewardship. It's creation care. It's not worship. This is a thought that keeps striking me as I go through this stuff and as I think about this. A way to understand what it is that Jesus does, especially given the way things are working in our culture right now, believing in Jesus Christ reconciles us to God. And then walking the way of Jesus Christ reconciles us to each other and to God's creation as well. 
This is walking the way of Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, part of the story of God putting Adam and Eve in the garden. <clears throat> the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, to take care of it. The intention was for the garden to grow and grow and grow because of the stewardship of the humans that God put inside of the garden. Well, as we continue to have these things in our heads and trying to clarify the relationship between God and creation and his people, let's keep rolling through some of the plagues. We make our way to the fourth plague, the flies, back in Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day... I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so, and there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. <laughs> they ruined the land of Egypt. I love that language. Absolutely ruined the land of Egypt. More of God's power over all of creation. And now God makes it explicit who is and who, who is not his people? He's going to separate out the land of Goshen. And this plague is not going to follow them, fall on them. And this is going to become a critical part to how the rest of the plagues unfold, leading us to the pinnacle of the plagues, the Passover itself. You will not be subject to the Passover of that angel if you're my people and if you obey my word. So we're on our way there, and we begin to get a glimpse of God protecting his people through these plagues now. And again, the phrase is inside of this plague, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. I am God absolutely everywhere. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 25. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. So it's another negotiation tactic. But Moses said it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. I still need my slaves. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord tomorrow. 
So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Egypt, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So again, like the frogs, like the gnats, the flies are so bad. Pharaoh tells Moses to go ahead and I'm going to let you sacrifice to your God here in the land. And it leads to an interesting conversation. Moses says, we can't do that. It's going to actually cause trouble if we make our sacrifices amongst the Egyptians. Well, that's because the animal that Moses would sacrifice is sacred to the Egyptians. So we've got another Egyptian god involved here, actually a god and a goddess, who a little bit later on are going to be smitten again by the hand of God. But the sacrifice, a bull, is a sacred image of another deity to the Egyptians. The goddess is Hathor, the the cow. The god is Apis, and we've got another good image of Apis, the bull. And if they do that, this bull is sacred to them, and Moses says it's going to cause nothing but trouble if we do this in the land. We have to leave to make this sacrifice. Finally, just another fascinating piece of this conversation. So Moses and Pharaoh, Pharaoh offers, well, a three days journey. Moses says, well, let us go. And Pharaoh then again hardens his heart against God once the plague is over. By now, if you can imagine again what's been taking place, the way people have suffered through every one of these plagues, and now we see specifically the suffering of just the Egyptians because of the hardness of the heart of Pharaoh. By now, Pharaoh has become the enemy of his people. The tyrant does not care for the people. Despite all of the promises, despite the access to power that he has to make this happen, he refuses and it continues to cause more and more and more trouble for his own people. Tyrants don't care. They rule for themselves and they rule for their inner circle. This is just one of the things we're learning about this kind of political power and what tyrants are like. So at this point, I want to think through a moment, reflecting on what's happening with Pharaoh, what's going on, what some of the consequences are so far. I want to think about this for a couple of minutes, because again, I think this is important. The worship of false gods becomes the worship of falsehood. The worship of false gods just becomes the worship of falsehood. Again, it's not just six of one and half a dozen of another. I worked with a guy years ago, nice guy, but he used to say over and over and over again, it's five of one and half a dozen of another. Well, that makes one of them better than the other. It's okay. You can do the math later at home. (laughs) They're not the same. Worshiping some other deity, worshiping some other God, worshiping some political movement, it's not the same is worshiping the one true God. False gods always come with their own moral structure. From the Egyptian gods to the Greek and Roman gods 
to queer theory, to social justice environmentalism, to wokeism, it all comes with its own moral structure. When you worship other gods, you believe different things. Friends, this is one of the themes that works its way throughout the Old Testament in ways that sometimes our eyes and ears, when we read through the Old Testament, we don't exactly know what's going on. But over and over again, for instance, in the Old Testament law and then throughout the Old Testament prophets, the people of God are warned against intermarriage with other nations. It's not an ethnic problem, it's a religious and worship problem. Because when you worship, or excuse me, when you intermarry with other, uh, with other nations, it's not the way that we think of it. What you're doing is you're pulling in those gods into your home. You begin to worship those other deities inside of your household. So you begin to worship false gods, and you begin to live according to the ways of those false gods. We're going to talk about that kind of stuff later on, but it's absolutely critical that we understand the worship of false gods becomes the worship of falsehoods. False gods enforce false and destructive morality because they are the doctrine of demons. They are also the morality of demons. So we see, for instance, Pharaoh is willing to lie openly. Every step of repentance of his is a political trick of one kind or another. His treatment of the Lord or of the Lord's people is all a farce in the service of his own power. Friends, truth is not of value to people who worship a lie. Truth is not of value to people who worship a lie. Truth is not valued itself. It may become a tool to get something done, where truth becomes an obstacle to someone's goals. We have to deny it, cancel it, get rid of it, find ways around it. Truth is always an obstacle to where we're going if someone worships a lie. We see again how Pharaoh is willing to let his people suffer. The pagan world does not know how to value people unless those people give you value first. One of the moral revolutions that comes through the book of Exodus and is expounded through the rest of the Bible is this idea that every human being is created in the image of God and is of infinite value to God and should be of infinite value to us. That's sort of second nature to us in many ways, but understand that's not Egypt. That's not the other That's not the other God's value. That one's given to us by this God. Truth and value, right, come to us from God. And then we begin to see this as well. Pharaoh is willing to deny reality itself. Already his magicians have failed. He watched that. They told him, we can't do this. This is the hand of God. The plagues continue to get worse, and they're going to get worse. His refusal to see reality for what it really is will end in death and destruction on a wholesale scale. His denial of reality and who God is is going to cause trouble. And friends, if you allow me to say so for a couple of minutes... 
There are major parts of our culture that are turning against reality. I mean, if you listen to some of the things that are said out there and you think to yourself, what? How, how can you think that? How can you deny the evidence of your eyes? How can you deny the evidence of what everyone knows is simple science, simple logic? Have you had that reaction to the world lately? It's because increasingly powerful parts of our culture worship a lie. That's why this happens. And people find themselves in deception. And there are parts of our culture that are openly and violently promoting falsehood. And quite honestly, friends, the most recent stage of the sexual revolution is to deny biological and psychological realities and claim that we are infinitely recreatable in our own image. And that belief is causing so much harm. The people who are caught up inside of that demonic lie, and we have to always remember, you and I do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This is a demonic lie. And people are caught in it, and they're being destroyed by it. And they're being violently turned in favor of it. It's because, friends, so many in our culture have decided to worship a lie. Through the week, I thought this is, was going to be where I finished the sermon. But then I thought, the sermon's too short. There's more to say. But something else struck me, and something else just keeps going through my head. We keep talking about the plagues in terms of a confrontation of the gods. Are we back in the same place right now? Are we in one form or another in the sandals of Moses and Aaron in open spiritual conflict? I think we are. I think we are. These falsehoods have always been around. They've always done damage. They've always found purchase in bits and pieces of our culture here and there. But friends, it's hitting the surface in ways that make our heads spin if we are paying attention. Because I believe we are back in the same place. Moses, Pharaoh, the God of Moses, and the so-called God of this world. And we find ourselves right there in this spot. And it is open spiritual warfare for souls. And we're back to one of our original ideas as we started this book. What happens when the culture changes around us this radically? What happens when the people of God become exiles and we didn't have to go anywhere? We didn't have to be sent anywhere. We just become so different from the moral structure of large parts of our culture that suddenly just feels foreign to us. What happens? A couple of thoughts about that here in the middle of the plagues. And the first is this. <clears throat> Evil needs to be called out and confronted. It just does. And that's what Moses was called to do. And Moses knew, or at least he had some sort of significant feel for what that meant. 
So he keeps telling God, are you sure I'm the guy? (laughs) I stutter. I can't do this. Someone else can do this better than I can. I've called you. I've equipped you. We've talked about Moses' calling. We've talked about what courage means in this context. And here it is. Evil needs to be called out and confronted. Evil forces are warned and judged. Pharaoh, let my people go so they can serve me in the wilderness. If you don't, this is what will happen. Right? So evil forces need to be openly confronted and said, he alone is God. He alone is God. Repent or suffer judgment. This is the, the first sermon that Jesus preaches in the Gospel of Mark. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Should this be one of the things that the church now says in public? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or have we, like many others inside of the Christian church, decided there's really not that much now to repent of? The church should repent. Mm. I disagree with that, by the way. Right? The way that you can understand that. So evil forces are warned and judged. God does this constantly through the prophets and through his word and through the apostles. And one of the consequences of doing that openly is that others can see the differences between the gods that control this world and the God who died for their sins and rose again so that they may have life everlasting. There are differences between these two gods. So God says over and over throughout the plagues, this is going to happen so that you may know that I alone am the Lord. That's how this is going to work. Something else here. Um, it's going to give us all the, the good feels. All the good feels. We may go through trials while evil and broken people have their way. One way or another, the nation of Israel is there in Egypt while the nation of Egypt and Pharaoh's judged. Now, we've reached a point in the plagues where God has said, I'm, I'm actually going to protect my people from now on. The plagues that fall upon Egypt, including the death of the firstborn, it's not going to happen to my people. But there they are in the land of Egypt anyway. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. The Apostle Paul. We usually think of the second half of this verse, which is great. But the second half of the verse is great because of the first half of the verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There may be suffering in this time, whatever that looks like. And Paul suffered, suffered significantly. Suffered more than maybe I'll suffer in this life. He says, but you know what? That just, it's nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. In this context, is important. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
We were once there in our sin. And the world in its sin is still there, run by the spirit of this age, run by our enemy in disobedience against God. It's just part of what it means to live in a fallen, broken world. So while this is true, we may go through trials while evil and broken people have their way. Something else is true. We know who is and who is not the Lord. We know who is. We know these other promises are false promises. We know these other claims to power are in the end false claims to power. We know that these other claims to changing the core of the moral structure of our culture and the universe are false claims. We know this because we know who is the Lord. We know what his character and will is like. He's revealed himself to us. We know who is the Lord. This means we know who wins. There's no question who's going to win in the plagues in the end. And there's no question to us either. We know who wins. Come Tuesday night, listen to the book of Revelation, and you'll know. If you don't know, you will know. This also means we know who saves. These other gods that our culture worships do not save. The gods that our culture worships are no different than the power of Pharaoh's magicians. It only mimics the things of God and causes more destruction, friends. This means that we learn to see and reject evil. We see it for what it is, and as followers of Jesus Christ, we can point to it and say, that's evil, that's destructive, that's immoral, that's wrong. We actually can't have eyes to see that. This also means that you and I learn to walk the line between hating evil for the harm that it does Loving people who may be deceived and angry, but are still made in the image of God. And these kinds of tensions just keep coming to the surface of our culture, and it gets harder and harder to walk this line. But this is what we are called to. To hate evil because God hates evil. Why? Because it destroys his creation. And love people. Why? Because God loves people and sent his son for that very reason. He is patient towards, oh my goodness. We sang it this morning and we can sing it from our hearts. May today be the day when we sing the song of heaven. We find ourselves in the presence of God forever. We feel that need and desire. Scripture tells us that God is patient though. Whenever the Lord decides to return up to that point, God is patient. Why? Scripture tells us because he wants people with him. He wants to save sinners. So we find the way to walk that line ourselves. We can't do this staying silent. We can't do any of this if we just walk the way of the world. We follow Jesus Christ And we invite the rest of the world to come along. Let's pray.